A um, couple things. Uh, many of you heard perhaps that um, Jack Schlafer passed away this last week. Um, I don't know if some of you might know the Schlafers or San- Sandy Schlafer. Um, the funeral is today in uh, Wausau at 3 o'clock. Uh, if you want more, next Sunday. Oh, I'm sorry. I totally misread that. Totally misread it. Next Sunday, 3 o'clock. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, we'll get more information out there. Uh, we can put it in the bulletin and you'll see when that is. So, um, And uh, I know the Curtis family has a new birth. Are they here today? Curtis's, are you here today? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So tell us who that is. Weston Michael. On the 8th. All right. Very good. Very good. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to pray uh, for these two dear families, and then we'll uh, get into the sermon today. Father, we thank you because you are the giver and taker of life. Our days are in your hands. We trust you for all of these things. And so we lift up the Schlafer family with Jack's passing and ask that you would bring your great comfort and peace to each one of them. And we celebrate with the Curtis family this new life, little Weston. We ask for him and for his family that they would be blessed by you with health and and maybe the biggest one, that, that little Weston would know his Savior, would know his Jesus who loves him. Uh, that he would grow up knowing who he is. And so, uh, Lord, we thank you for this and we praise you and we trust all of these families with you, knowing that you're caring for each one, guiding each one, whether it's through the celebration of life or the, the grief of loss, that you are present, that you are there, the same one in every circumstance of our life. We praise you. And so now as we look at uh, somebody that is at the bottom of life, a person that expresses the feeling of being in the pit of life, we we ask that you would give us the grace of understanding what this text is telling us today and what it means. Would you reveal your glorious truth in it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. They traveled from all over to bring him comfort. And they fought along the way what they were going to see when they got there. They'd heard the stories. They heard about the Sabaeans who rushed in and stole all the oxen and the donkeys and killed the servants. They'd heard about the Chaldeans, the camel stealers who came in and took all of those. They heard about a great wind that rushed in and pushed a house over on the kids as they were celebrating a birthday. But nothing prepared them for what they actually saw. He was unrecognizable, sitting outside the city as an outcast in front of a perpetually burning garbage dump. Is that Job? His face is disfigured. You know, uh, men like to joke in their older age about losing hair and gaining weight, but but to actually not even look like yourself? The boils that cover, that ooze and itch, 
sitting by a pile of refuse, he grabs a broken piece of pottery and itches. Ashes in his hair, eyes that are red and puffy from weeping. They sit down next to him with ripped clothes themselves. Ashes in their hair now, and they weep with him, saying nothing. For what is there to say? They sit there for days and they see what life is like for him. They see that he can't keep food down and so his weight drops by the day. They notice that his wife less and less comes out to see him because he is utterly repulsive. Even sitting next to him, they smell his breath that reeks of death. And they wonder how far that event is away from him. At night, it's hard for him to sleep. He rolls around. He has incredible stomach pain and pain throughout his body. But when he does fall asleep, when he finally gets a moment of unconscious rest, he does not dream of the good days. He doesn't dream of his children of wealth or wine or happiness. Instead, he is terrified by nightmares, calling out in the night. What has happened to him? Finally, on the eighth day of weeping, no talking, sitting, mourning, This is what they hear. Would you turn to Job chapter 1? Sorry, chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Chapter 3, verse 2. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse, curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why didn't I die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? Let's pause there for a moment. Happy stuff today. Happy Sunday. Um, I won't leave you on a downer, but we are looking at chapter 3. If you've ever read chapter 3 of Job, you in the previous chapter, Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And after seven days of mourning and sitting with his friends, He finally, 
Job is able to finally say what's in his heart and tell everybody what he's feeling. In the first 12 verses, what we hear him do is curse the day of his birth. He curses his birthday. And it's interesting because what he's doing here, uh, and, I'm, and I'm trying to get you in the mindset of an ancient person, uh, what he's doing here is almost like giving a reverse creation curse. Like, did you notice how much he talks about the darkness? If God says, let there be light, Job says, let there be darkness. You see what he's doing? He's, he's conjuring the imagery of God creating the world and saying, if I could just undo all that, I would never feel the way I feel today. Because I wish none of this has ever happened to me. It would be better not to be born. It's a reverse creation curse. It is like, uh, you get the feeling it is like an incantation. Like, like he's heard professional cursors do this and now he's doing it. It, it kind of comes from, um, and I'm not saying, Job is not promoting this by the way, but uh, people that look at ancient Egyptian thinking on, on the days and all that will tell us that, that they used to think like every day was like a new act of creation. And, and there would be spirit beings fighting to bring the next day about. Well, he's wishing that that would never happen, you know, that they would just be totally wiped out. It is a wish. It's a wish. I'm not saying he's actually trying to call on a magical spell and actually undo that. I don't, I don't think Job believed that according to his righteous, righteousness in the Lord. I don't see that. But he's using that language because that's what he knows. You'll notice that he says, verse 8, let those who curse it curse the day. And here what he's doing is he's calling on professional cursors. You probably know some of those at work, right? Um, professional cursors to curse his birthday and to bring about this, they say, rouse up Leviathan. Now we're going to deal with Leviathan later on in a few months. Uh, God's going to bring up Leviathan later. But, but just to say now, uh, Leviathan's kind of like this mythological beast, this, this chaos creature, this evil monster. And, and, and so what Job is doing is, it's like he's saying, may this Leviathan, may this chaos creature be called on by professional cursors to get rid of my birthday. I wish that would happen. So he's using the language of the day in a kind of reverse creation curse. Now, I I am not suggesting that when someone is at the bottom of things that we try to talk them out of it. But I but what I want to do is just show you I want to show you what Job doesn't know. Okay? I want to show you what Job doesn't see in this moment of cursing the day of his birth. Can I have you look at um, where do I want you to go? Verse 5. Uh, very difficult words here, and I want to show you even even deeper how, how hard they are. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. The word claim is the same word that we would use when we say God redeems something. To redeem something is to buy it back. 
It's like a slave on the auctioning block and someone says, I'm going to get you out of slavery. I'm going to buy you back. It's the people of Israel and Egypt for 400 years and God brings them out of Egypt and redeems them. He buys them back. They're His people and He's going to make them free. And yet Job uses the word redeem and he says, let gloom and deep darkness redeem the day of my birth. You know, like that's, that is super, super negative because he uses a theologically rich word with its opposite meaning. I mean, that's heavy. But what I would point out is what Job doesn't know is God is going to redeem the day. That God is going to redeem all of creation that's groaning and calling out. The fire fell down from heaven and burned up some of Job's animals, you know, but God is going to redeem everything. This, it's going to be this new world, this new heavens and new earth where everything's made right and we're going to live in this place that is new and yet somewhat recognizable as, as home. And Job doesn't get it yet, but there is a redeemer that's going to change everything and going to renew it all around us. He just can't see it right now. And so in his mind, it might as well be gloom and darkness that redeems. One more word on professional cursors. If you want to, if you, you probably know the name of one actually in the Bible. His name's Balaam. And he had a donkey that talked to him. Remember that? He's hired to curse Israel, but the donkey sees the, the angelic figure in the road and starts talking, won't, won't go forward. And, jo- and uh, Balaam's like beating the donkey, you know. Remember that story from Sunday school? Balaam is a professional cursor. They never told you that in Sunday school. But by cursor, again, I don't mean, I don't mean he liked to cuss. I mean that he would issue blessings or curses on groups of people or, or, or persons. That was Balaam. And so you get this idea that Job is calling on people like Balaam to curse his birthday. Oh, but what he doesn't know. Let's keep going. Uh, if you look at verse 13, it doesn't get much better. Um, in verse 13 and following, I'm just going to tell you what you're reading before we read it. Um, Job starts about speaking about longing for the afterlife. We, we would call, in the Old Testament, we might call it Sheol. It's this idea of this gloomy place of death. Um, so, so listen to how he describes it here. Uh, so verse 12, why did needs receive me? Uh, why the breast that I should nurse? For then, verse 13, I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden as a a stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free of his master. Now, let me be clear here. This is an ancient person's understanding of the afterlife. This is not meant to be authoritative. This is how we're supposed to think of the afterlife. But a person in Job's day, and this is probably before Israel, you know, this is before Psalm 23, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a beautiful, beautiful, comforting passage we use at funerals, appropriately so. But but for Job, it's more like, what they knew at that time, remember God's revelation is progressive, right? When we say God's revelation is progressive, what we mean is God doesn't tell you everything right now. 
you get more information as you go. And when we get to the New Testament, we get more. What Job knows, what he thinks he knows is this. I die and I go to this compartment, this place called Sheol. And it's a gloomy place. It's not a fun, happy place. But the wicked go there and the good people go there. Everybody goes there. And you're not really sure what happens there. But we're all going to be there. And at the very least, it has to be more restful than what I've got going on right now. People people didn't wish to go to Sheol. You know, it's not like you would be like, oh, I can't wait to get there. But what you see in Job is he can't wait to go there. As gloomy as it is, at least he says, um, well, he says like in verse 18, the prisoners are at ease. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. At least I don't have these horrendous events happening to me in Sheol. At least there, maybe I can rest without a, a delirious dream coming upon me. By the way, everything I described in the opening part of this sermon is stuff that Job says throughout the book about himself. You know, I wasn't making up his illnesses and his feeling. You know, it was like he describes that all himself. The, the, the dropping weight, not being able to keep food down, um, all of that. All of that's in there in the book of Job throughout the whole thing. He says in verse, uh, if you want to look at verse 14, there's some difficult words here as far as scholars trying to wrestle with what it means, but he, says, he talks about the kings and the counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. One idea of ruins might be, uh, you know, like pharaohs built pyramids and they'd be buried there in them. The, the idea there might be they, they, they made these ruins and that's where they rest in death with their gold and their silver and all of that. He kind of mentions the gold and silver uh, in, uh, where is it, verse 15. You know, So it might be that he's just referring to tombs of great people and what they're buried with, all their stuff. But, again, what I'm going to point out is Job does not have any sort of revelation about what heaven is like. He does, he's not referring to streets of gold. He's probably referring to tombs with gold in them that the dead person cannot spend, you know? He doesn't have clarity on the hope that we have as believers. Uh, when I die, I get to be with my Lord and Savior. It's not in a gloomy place of, of waiting or resting. It is a joyful place in the presence of the Savior. It's a place to look forward to. It's a place where Paul can say, I kind of want to go there. Well, like I can stay here and do God's work, but if I'm there, oh my goodness, it's going to be good, you know? Job doesn't have that. You have that. You've been given the progressive revelation of the New Testament. Glory to God, you've got something Job didn't have. If a gloomy place sounds good, how much better does heaven sound to us that wait for it? That have vivid descriptions of it that this man never had. Let's keep going. Uh, in the last verses here, what Job does is he just laments his life. Okay? And he talks, and he has an interesting word about a hedge. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about that in a minute here. Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death but it comes not? And dig for it more than hidden treasures? Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? 
Why is light given to the man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. In this last lament, and after this, Job's friends start talking and making everything worse. Um, Verse 23 is what I call your attention to. He says, Why is light given to the man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Do you remember what the accuser, the Satan, says to God last week? He says, I'll remind you, um, Job ha- I'll paraphrase. Satan basically says, Job has every reason to praise you and worship you and fear you, God, because you've put a hedge around him. You've blessed him exceedingly. But if you take that hedge away, he will curse you to your face. Now, what I see Job saying here is, I hear him saying, I feel hedged in by God. This is not, doesn't feel like a hedge of protection like we pray for a lot. You prayed for that probably at some point. This feels like a hedge of oppression. A hedge of oppression. That, that he knows God is near, and yet it feels like God has, has hedged him in, like, enclosed. So like this, if there's a force field around his life that's kept things out, now it's letting stuff in. And it's, it's letting all sorts of bad things in, and it's not keeping them out. Sometimes it feels like God has stopped smiling on our life. Sometimes it feels like God's grace is just not there. He's there, but it's in a sense that He's not helping me figure out what's going on. It's like the hedge is keeping out understanding and holding in ignorance. I have no idea why this is happening to me. I feel like things are closing in on me. I feel like all the bad stuff is trapped here. Why is it all in here with me? It's a hedged in. And again, what I would say, what he doesn't know is that God in heaven was Job's defender. Talking to Satan and saying, you know, you incited me against Job for no reason. I mean, God's telling the Satan character, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Job is not like one of those selfish people who are just in it for the stuff. He's in it for me because he fears me. He worships me. God is Job's defender, but in that moment it just doesn't feel like it. So here's what I want to do. I forgot to say this in the beginning. But maybe you saw the title of the sermon. What does God require of us when we suffer? What does He want us to do when the bottom falls out, when we're in the pit? What are we supposed to do? You ever thought about that? God, You've allowed all this in my life. Now what? What does God require of us? And I read Job 3. And truly the rest of Job as well. And this is what I'm left with. God, what do you want? Just 
hold on. That would be my answer from the book of Job, and in particular chapter 3. Just hold on to God. Let me tell you two things Job doesn't do in chapter 3. Job does not curse God. And that's exactly what Satan wants him to do. It's what his wife tells him to do. And if he does it, Satan is proven right. I told you, God, that he would curse you if you took to take away all of his stuff. People are all about their stuff. Job does not curse God. He curses the day of his birth. Now, some people say, well, that's a short jump between cursing your birthday and cursing God because God gave you your birthday. Okay, okay, okay. But I don't believe Job has failed the test here. Do you? I don't think he's failed the test. I think he's passing the test. And I think when you're at the bottom and you have no answers and life is falling apart around you, you don't know what's going on, you just say, I'm not going to curse God. And maybe most days of the week that would just be enough, right? I'm not going to curse God. Because that's exactly what Satan would have me do. That would be enough. Hold on. The other thing Job doesn't do, he doesn't contemplate or attempt suicide. His wife says, curse God and die. He longs for death. But he never takes his own life. Some days that's enough, right? I remember... uh Taking my kids to Chuck E. Cheese. You all still do that? I know it's in Appleton. Um, it's probably one of Madison, I think, too. Um, and kids have a great time there. There's this, there was this machine. I think it's in the one in Appleton. And it's like this giant arcade-like thing, like an arcade shape, but it's like a huge gorilla. You know what I'm talking about? This huge gorilla. My boys remember because it, because it, uh, it, it beat them, right? Did it beat you guys? Did you beat it? Okay, okay. I don't know. I don't remember how it all worked out, but um, it was this huge gorilla, and he had like these huge hands, and next to the hands are like these two uh, metal rods that you need to hold on to, and you pop your little token in, and for 25 cents, you get to feel agony. It's awesome. You hold on to these two metal rods, and they begin to vibrate. You know, You know what I'm talking about, you know? They begin to vibrate. And then they start vibrating faster and faster and faster. And it starts to hurt your hand. And the idea is your job is just to hang on to this thing. And after a while, the, the, the gorilla's eyes start glowing red. And smoke starts coming out. Like I've never seen an arcade game where smoke starts coming out of the machine. But there's smoke coming. And, and the eyes are glowing. And, and, it's, and it's shaking you. And your goal is you just got to hang on. If you hang on, then you get the most tickets at the end, you know. Um, and so you just hang on. Are you, are you guys serious? Did you really hang on the whole time? I don't know. Okay. Um, and, uh, so th- that, that's it. That's it. And, uh, I thought, whoever designed this, I mean, like, it doesn't feel good. It hurts. And yet there's something really exciting about hanging on to the gorilla, you know, and not letting go. Uh, 
And I know that that is, that's the way life is sometimes. There are times of celebration when with our hands, won the Super Bowl, glory to God. I heard that a lot, you know, last Sunday. I loved hearing that. There's sometimes with our hands we praise God and point upward. Like life is at its best and I give glory to Him. Sometimes God takes stuff away and we release our hands and say, God, I guess you didn't want me to have that. But then there's times when we're at the bottom when it, when it has to be the grip. Hold on. Life is shaking and it's vibrating at such a speed and the steam is pouring out and I just got to hold on. I wish I'd played that game when I was a little kid because I probably would have felt different. I would have been scarier. You know, when you're an adult, you're kind of like, well, that's whatever, you know. But probably would have been scarier when I was a kid. But just hold on. Life is shaking at such a fast level. And that's all I can do. So sometimes I said, life, it just means, holding on just means, I'm not going to curse God. I'm not going to take my own life, although my life is miserable. That's very passive though, isn't it? That's what I'm not going to do. Um, can I suggest a couple of things you could do? You can write these down. I don't think I have them on my notes. I don't think I do. Um, you can do chapter 2 and 3 of Job. You can do chapter 3. You can lament your life. You can grieve. You can call a friend up and sit down and just pour it out. You can tell God in prayer everything you're feeling. You can get a counselor to sit down with you and walk you through that. Call a pastor. I will sit there and, and just... Hear it. Just hear it. Grieve. Lament. Cry. Hold on. You can lament. I'd say you can also long for something. You can long for heaven. I see that all over the New Testament. When people suffer, they long for that new country. That's in Hebrews. Encourage people with the words in Thessalonians that Jesus is coming back. Like, well, you get a reward for looking for His return, right? You can be in the bottom of the pit longing for Jesus. Just come back soon. And God rewards you for that. Hold on. Even if it's I'm done with this life and I can't wait for the next, hold on to Him. Hope in Him. And you can worship. Like chapter 2. You can say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Be praised. And I know there are some hard words in chapter 3. We're going to look at some other hard words from Job in the future here. Job doesn't always say things the way they probably ought to be shared, but they are from his heart. And God is going to deal with them on a few things, he says. Quite frankly, God hedging us in, I wouldn't talk like that. The God of grace that I know, but but He does allow those things in sometimes that are tragic. And it is going to feel like hedging in. And Job just says it. But He never curses His Creator. So we're at the end here of chapter 3. I wish I could do every chapter like this, you know, slowly, but there's going to be long poetic sections coming up in future weeks. We're going to have to hurry through them. 
Um, if you want to read along, you'll get more out of this. If you want to read through Job's speeches and the friend's speeches, those are coming in future weeks. But maybe for now, what's best for us is to know God doesn't require us to be super people. He just wants you to hold on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I would ask for those that are in the bottom of the pit right now that you give them the strength to not let go. To cling to you. I think the psalmist in, I feel like it's Psalm 68 says, my soul clings to you. Oh, maybe that be true of us. We thank you for the hope that we have. I think of the words of the New Testament that describe heaven and what a hope that gives to know the Redeemer that will change everything and truly reverse the curse that happened in the Garden of Eden. We look forward to that day. Thank you that we can grieve and lament with hope. Even as we look at a man that didn't have the full-blown understanding of heaven, we can still be grateful that we've received that. Help us continue to praise you even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to